Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Laura Isabel Serna about her recent book, Making Cinelandia, American Films and Mexican Film Culture Before the Golden Age, published by Duke University Press in 2014. Laura is an associate professor of critical studies in the School of Cinematic Arts, and she also shares an affiliate faculty member position in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. At USC, Laura teaches and researches on topics including international film history, the cultural and industrial history of cinema in Latin America during the silent period, Latino media cultures, marginalized labor in the Hollywood system, and the relationship of nationalism to the formation of film cultures. Professor Serna is also the recipient of numerous grants and fellowships, including the prestigious Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Fellowship and a Fulbright Garcia Robres Fellowship. Laura, uh, welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. David James. DJ. DJ's fine. <laughs> DJ's fine. Okay. Um, I always like to use people's uh, preferred name. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I was, I'm so glad you're on our channel today, and I was hoping that you could begin our conversation just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about the book. Um, as you mentioned, I'm on the faculty in critical studies at the School of Cinematic Arts. I arrived at that position um, by a kind of circuitous route. Uh, I received my PhD uh, from Harvard University in American Studies um, and then um, pursued, uh, I worked for a year in a history department up two years, actually, um, and then made the switch into film studies where they, the department was looking for um, someone with a historical background and training who could teach historical methodology gotcha. um, to students who were interested um, in that type of work. Um, so, and I received my editor's degree from UC Berkeley, um, actually in religious studies. So I really? have a, wow. Yeah, I have a very um, eclectic, I guess, maybe, mm-hmm. but to me it makes sense. Um, I went to religious studies because, again, like American studies, it was an interdisciplinary degree, right. and I could take a lot of different classes 
um, in different departments. I was always interested in cultural history. And at Harvard, which has a very traditional, um, I think some people would characterize the program as very traditional American studies program, Mm -hmm. um, students are encouraged to develop competency in um, a particular discipline. And I chose to kind of craft an identity as a cultural historian. I was really privileged to work with Ruth Feldstein and uh, Elizabeth Cohen, Right. There at Harvard, right. um, and as well as David Hall, who some people might not have heard of. He's a historian of the book and of the church mm. in early American history, but really is a trained um, as a very fine cultural historian. Um, and I, those are the faculty members that really helped me develop kind of my methodological chops, gotcha. as it were. Right, and and so the the book I take it generated from your dissertation. Is that correct? Can you tell us a bit more about how yeah. you came to write uh, Making Sinelandia? Sure. Okay. So I, when I started my program at um, Harvard, I was really interested in the fine arts. And I thought that I was going to write something about um, art exhibitions. So I had this completely other idea and had pursue, been pursuing this other idea. And as I was doing research for, I think, a seminar paper, if I recall, I came across um, a newspaper article. And this newspaper article, which I write about in the book, was a kind of um, cautionary tale that talked about women fleeing Mexico. So it, was, it was published in 1926 mm-hmm. and going to Hollywood in hopes of becoming movie stars. And for some reason, I became really intrigued by this new story because it was not a story that was familiar to me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a cultural historian. I had read a lot about... American film culture and American history. Mm-hmm. And I think the typical narrative was about kind of Anglo women, right, right coming from the Midwest perhaps, um, coming to Hollywood and meeting with the kind of dangers of the early film industry. And I had two questions, um, one about this article. And one was a question just about, okay, so what happened to them when they got here, if they got to LA? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, because you know, we have narratives about Lupe Velez, Dolores Del Rio, it's kind of star narrative, mm-hmm. but we don't have narratives about women, everyday women. That was one question. And the other question was, what was motivating them to come to Hollywood? Because a lot of the literature on um, Mexican immigration talk about, talks about, um, and I think this is becoming less the case, but talks about American mass culture, U.S. mass culture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as something that people encounter once they cross the border. Right, right. And this article seemed to suggest a different story about that. Um, and I really, this, this encounter with this newspaper article became the genesis of the dissertation. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so it was an American city dissertation. I, it was written at a moment in which the transnational was really gaining traction mm-hmm. as a kind of conceptual model. And I wanted to find out what would happen if I tracked American films as they moved into Mexico and what people made of them um, and think about both sides of the border at the same time right, right. as opposed to thinking about um, Mexico as one space and then the United States as another space. Right. Um, and so that was really, so the dissert- I wrote the dissertation and it received two prizes 
in two different fields. Um, I received the Gabriel Prize from the American Studies Association for the best dissertation in 2006. Great. And then uh-huh. it received the Society for Cinema and Media Studies Prize in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was encouraged because I felt like um, at least 14 people <laughs> in two separate fields had said, this is really interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, so I was encouraged to kind of think about how I could make the book, the, you know, the ultimate book version of the dissertation right. speak across fields and, um, and really engage in the debates that are, go- occur- that were occurring and are occurring in kind of different, um, realms of, of scholarly work and literature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that jumped out to me initially, uh, when I was introduced to the book is, is the title. I love looking at titles. I love kind of studying them. And so I was really intrigued by this process of, you know, making Cinelandia and what that entailed. And in the beginning, so to start kind of in the beginning of the book, uh, you start by discussing how in the early decades of the 20th century, American film companies looked to Mexico as sort of a gateway to expand their market share into Latin America. Uh, can you discuss a little bit uh, about this process of, of how U.S. film companies came to dominate the Mexican cinema? Um, but also what I find really interesting is is how Mexican exhibitors and audiences began to f- kind of force by their preferences and their practices. Uh, they forced U.S. film companies, that is, to adapt to the Mexican market. Can you talk about that? Sure. Okay. So um, I think this is um, a pretty well-known narrative about the history of the U.S. film industry, but just to review, so there was a moment in the early 20th century when the United States was not the main player in the global film market, Mm -hmm. when that space was occupied by France and Italy, Um, and then something happened, and that something that happened was World War I, Mm -hmm. and and World War I, one, really changed the landscape of the film industry worldwide um, for two, two reasons. First, um, because French and Italian studios no longer had access to resources mm-hmm. um, to make films. And second, because the war kind of interrupted the kind of global traffic in film. Um, at the same time, the U.S. industry was solidifying itself. The teens are the moment when companies come to what we now call Hollywood, to Southern California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the issues around patents, are resolved, and you see the emergence of these big studios with global ambitions that have Wall Street finance, financial backing, um, and they're very systematic in terms of not solely entering Latin America, right, but going all over the world. And really, um, the U.S. market, domestic market for motion pictures was so large that producers could recoup their costs in the domestic market, mm-hmm. which meant that everything they made internationally was gravy. Right, right. And in terms of Latin America and Mexico is really, and I had been asked this question numerous times, like, why Mexico? Like, why do we care? Right, right. <laughs> um, Mexico was not the largest market in Latin America. Um, Argentina and Brazil competed, and that was based on population, based on income, et cetera. But Mexico became really important to U.S. filmmakers because of its location, because of its geography, and because of its political kind of importance in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, Mexico was really a leader in uh, 
kind of diplomatic circles in Latin America in terms of establishing the terms of the debate. And so when U.S. film companies looked at Mexico, they said, okay, so especially the late teens, they said, okay, so we have a country that had been racked by civil war, but now things are getting better and it's becoming a good place to invest. Right. They also needed to kind of shore up or, or um, kind of protect what, what was a porous border. So there was a lot of film piracy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that happened across the U.S.-Mexico border, which... Um, and so U.S. film producers were really interested in protecting their capital. Um, and so they entered the Mexican market at a time when, when people needed films to show, exhibitors needed films to show. Audiences were hungry for motion pictures, and the Mexican industry did not exist. I mean, there was right. some artisanal production, especially in the late teens and the early 20s, but there was the level of technology was not such that they could produce films that would compete on a kind of aesthetic level, let's say, mm-hmm. or a technical level with Hollywood's kind of really well-funded uh, super production. Um, I mean, sometimes those films did compete in terms of having narrative content and even shooting on locations that audiences would recognize, so kind of telling stories and which was a, a serial that was produced in the end of the teens, is a case in point because it took a very sensational um, crime that happened in Mexico City and brought it to the screen, and people were extremely intrigued mm-hmm. uh, by that, and it was extremely popular. But when U.S. film companies came to Mexico, and this is part of the one of the arguments at the beginning of the book, is that they didn't merely kind of impose themselves. And I, I think one of the big ideas that I was trying to work through was earlier models of cultural history and even some current contemporary work that talks about U.S. culture as uh, solely a force of cultural imperialism. Right. Mm-hmm. And doesn't allow for a lot of agency um, in terms of the populations that are receiving that culture. And so one location or site, to use a kind of overly um, used word, where I found evidence of agency was in the activities of both U.S. film, I mean, sorry, Mexican film exhibitors and distributors and cinema workers, mm-hmm. right, um, who worked to make showing U.S. films part of the national economy. Right. Explicitly kind of thinking about it in patri- patri- patriotic terms, right? Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. showing the U.S. films but we're doing it because we're contributing to the Mexican economy. Right. And so we're playing our role in the, the kind of resurgence of the country after, you know, almost a decade of really intense civil war. Mm-hmm. And exhibitors likewise really saw what they were doing as um, both a kind of patriotic service, but also a kind of part of the state's modernization, push to modernize Mexico, because going to the cinema and showing films was considered a kind of modern activity. Right. It was part of being a civilized country, um, part of being, you know, I, I think membership in this, like, the global cinematic universe, mm-hmm. right, um, was understood as a marker of having arrived, even if the films themselves, the texts themselves, um, were not what we think of as nationalist texts. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're starting to go exactly where I was thinking next. That is, you know, you talk about, you mentioned earlier World War One. you've just started talking about the, the revolution. These were 
right? Tremendous geopolitical developments that had just created a mass amount of social and political upheaval, right? And particularly, you know, throughout the world, but we're talking about Mexico here. And so, uh, this, this upheaval was seen by, um, well, now in the post revolutionary area, right? Politicians, bureaucrats, businessmen, they sought to stabilize, uh, you know, post-revolutionary Mexico, and they saw cinema, right, as a, or the development of a cinema industry, film industry, as an opportunity, right, to um, solidify the nation, right, and to particularly, as you mentioned, modernize it. So can you discuss a bit more about the role of the cinema in that post-revolutionary nationalist project, and particular, uh, you know, how the cinema itself functioned, sorry, functioned, that is, as a, a type of national space? Okay, so so one of the things to distinguish, and I think this is, in my opinion, a part of the book that I was really um, inter- interested in um, drawing people's attention to, because I think, especially in the field of film studies, when people talk about national cinemas, they really think about nationalist texts. Mm-hmm. And often historians, um, likewise, fall into the same logic, right? So you'll read things like Mexican audiences in the U.S., immigrant audiences like to go see Mexican films. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And that may well have been true, (laughs) but the fact of the matter is that they do not see them very often. Right. So that being said, the Mexican state, unlike in the thirties and the forties, um, for reasons which we can talk about, um, didn't see film production necessarily as the way to use cinema to um, nationalist ends in support of this project. So there were a couple different ways um, that these kind of you might think about them as the kind of educated elite, the, the political kind of um, who's who and the, those who have capital to invest, etc. I have thought about cinema. And one of the most exciting pieces of evidence I found um, while I was doing my research, my archival research, was this report bought from the Secretary of the Exterior, right, um, exterior relations, talking about the cinema industry and saying, frankly, that in Mexico, film exhibition mm-hmm. was the nationalist space of cinema. That film exhibition was important. It was so important that the newly developed, newly formed Department of Labor did an industrial census of film exhibition in 1923. Um, they had been doing a series of uh, censuses about different industries, including textile manufacturing, I believe brick manufacturing, um, and a number of other industries in which they were gathering information. And I was really struck that film exhibition was among right. those. And the report stated really, really clearly that that was what was important about cinema in Mexico um, was this, this role of exhibition. At the same time, the space of the movie theater itself became um, created opportunities to perform national identity. Um, beyond kind of what was on the screen, the text itself, there were all sorts of activities kind of aligned with or that happened around. And sometimes this took the form of the music that was played. Mm -hmm. Um, Although in Mexico City, in Andeafe, there was a lot of jazz music played um, because this was a really modern form that was really popular among all sorts of audiences from kind of working class audiences all the way to the elite. But there were also 
kind of events in cinemas that celebrated national holidays, that right. presented um, local performers um, alongside films that had been imported. Um, and I think the discourse around, especially this industrial census around the role of film exhibition was that it was part of this modernizing project and that film exhibitors were contributing really actively um, to the modernization of Mexico's economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is really, um, I think, the argument of the second chapter um, about, you know, what is it, what, what, how were people interpreting, um, and how can we think more broadly about cinema as opposed to film? And um, when I use the term cinema, I can mean all of the kind of activities that happen around showing films. So mm, okay. uh, not just the films themselves, but film distribution, film exhibition, film reception, mm-hmm. right? These kind of the architecture around films. Um, you know, I was also kind of working through some of the received wisdom in film studies that Mexicans didn't really go to the movies until the advent of the golden age. And I think that I proved quite in a, a strongly that this was not the case. Right, right, yes. Right, that there were all sorts of cinemas in, or that film going was an activity of the elite. And certainly the elite did participate in going to the motion picture theater, but there were all sorts, and I focused specifically on Mexico City, mm-hmm. um, and I've done some research in other regions, um, but in Mexico City, for example, there were all sorts of cinemas from kind of, you know, top-tier movie palaces to cines del barrio, right, that were really just like kind of concrete buildings um, with benches in them. Mm-hmm. And I described some of those spaces in the book. Um, you know, a, a moving picture theater that is right next to a, a stable, right? Mm-hmm. Or a, a, a automotive kind of um, mechanic shop, um, you know, or in other country. Um, and this, this census was really instrumental in kind of learning about what it was, what like in other parts of the country, cinemas that existed or were in operation only one or two days of the week and then the rest of the week, for example, um, the owner operated a nixtamal um, or molino um, for the um, to grind corn, mm-hmm. right? But in part, those two things are facilitated and related because they both require electricity. So these entrepreneurs in smaller towns could say, "Okay, I'm going to grind corn, which people need for for tortillas," and then on the weekend, you know, I have this projector and I'm going to show motion pictures, <laughs> right? And those two businesses are combined. Um, so, so that is kind of some of the way. Those are some of the ways in which this this kind of the exhibition of imported mass culture became kind of nationalized um, in certain ways um, within this broader context. And and it's important to remember that during the post revolutionary period, I mean, there are two things going on at once. One, the Mexican government is kind of advocating for the adoption of certain regional cultural forms of cultural expression, right. like the mariachi, like the china poblana, um, like the charro, as kind of national symbols, but also really invested in modernization. Mm-hmm. Right, and you were talking how you mentioned how the in the book. So there's 
specifically purpose-built theaters started to emerge around the 1920s, right? And these became important uh, symbols of modernity, physical symbols, physical manifestations of modernity. Um, uh, and so that was part of this nationalist project where, you know, the cinema itself, uh, movie theaters, their physical space represented a, a important, uh, an important type of symbolism to um, Mexican modernity, but also they, they served as, to, um, you know, educational spaces. Can you talk a bit more about that? How, uh, you know, just the practice of, of viewing a film or everything that evolved around it was also a form of uh, instruction. This is seen by the Mexican state, right? Uh, if they can instruct their, you know, post-revolutionary citizen as to what the ideal type of citizen should be. Right. Okay. So this was one of the sources that I used, and this was a real, um, a genuine multi-archival project. Um, my archives are very scattered, and I was really fortunate to be able to spend a great deal of time in the archives, um, having been awarded a, a, several fellowships, actually, and spending a lot of time in Mexico to do it. And so one of the sources that I used, which I found in the municipal archive um, in Mexico City were cinema inspectors' reports. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and cinema inspectors, this is a you know a government job, right? So it's a little bit cushy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I understand that, like other forms of inspection, um, cinema inspectors were also you know sometimes perceived to be on the graft um, to have gotten their position through nepotism. Mm-hmm. Etc. But at any rate, they left copious notes right, because they were meant to go out every day and go to the various motion picture theaters and report on their conditions, like their cleanliness, their comfort, the quality of projection, right? Because um, some theaters were not completely closed to light, um, whether or not they were lighted, um, whether or not. Um, and this had been true of the theater, but what became, you know, uh, a concern in regards to motion picture theaters, um, whether or not there were couples in the balcony making out mm-hmm. um, <laughs> or engaging in kind of other kind of unsavory practices, um, et cetera. So, so, and they also reported on what shows, what, what um, screenings were sold out were the most popular and what the kind of general taste of the audience were, audiences were. Um, and these inspectors brought their kind of class-based perspective, right, to their work. Right? And they had many, many, many opinions about working-class audiences and what they liked and what they sh- thought they should like, mm-hmm. right, and how they behaved in the theater and how they thought they should behave. And I really, um, you know, and some people said, well, you're only getting the perspective of these very elite people, but I chose to engage in what I think is a really productive practice of reading against the grain of my sources. And although it's really difficult for us to access the experience of working class audience members because no one, they didn't leave diaries, some, you know, once in a while you have a kind of... uh, a hunch or the, the, a really tantalizing clue, but really I have yet to find the scrapbook of the factory, the girl who worked in the factory <laughs> right? and went to the movie theater. When I find it, I'll be so excited. But, you know, I knew, I was like, that's going to be hard. But I have these guys who are telling me that working class people like, for example, motion picture serials, right? mm-hmm. which in the teens were these kind of adventure action films that were considered... De classe, 
um, they had a lot of like uh, close calls and some romantic intrigue and violence, and you know they were considered lowbrow, but people really liked them mm-hmm. a lot. And um, the inspectors were very clear that they did not think that this was a good thing. They also talked about the way that working class people kind of used their bodies um, by making noise, whether it was stomping their feet or whistling or um, engaging in other kinds of practices that disrupted viewing. And in doing so, these inspectors kind of set up a model um, discursively of, of who they thought the appropriate spectator should be, the Mexican mm-hmm. spectator. And typically the rhetoric they used was this rhetoric of family, right? That these should be spaces that are appropriate to families. And the family was this really important kind of element of post-revolutionary kind of political rhetoric, right? That mm-hmm. we were going to build appropriate families for a lot of reasons that historians have explored, right? This kind of desire to discipline um, the intimate lives of the working class mm-hmm. and to ask them to conform to middle class standards. Um, so the movie, the movie, the motion picture theater, and a lot of times the inspectors, just to back up, would tell theater owners, you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to make your theater more appropriate to families. Mm-hmm. You need to provide better lighting. You need to provide gender segregated restrooms, right? Um, you need to tell the quesadilla lady that she can't come in. <laughs> and sell quesadillas or tortas right. in the aisle, right. right? Because that's inappropriate. Um, so whether or not, and certainly the police came. Um, I have lots of reports of the police being called, um, and I couldn't find police reports per se. Um, but so I you know the police were called, and sometimes the, re- the inspectors would say, the policeman was here, but he was asleep. <laughs> Um, in a theater, right? um, which they found profoundly unhelpful, mm-hmm. and they were always really, really bent out of shape about these policemen who weren't doing their job. But people were taken to the police station for engaging in um, misbehavior, whether it was smoking or uh, heavy petting, um, etc. And so they invoked this kind of the family as this ideal. Um, and wanted to use the, the motion picture theater to educate and uplift a certain segment of Mexican society. Mm-hmm. And the theater mm-hmm. also became, you know, although the government didn't engage in the support of feature film production per se in the 1920s, they did produce public health messages that would be that would be screened, whether they were slides or sometimes films. Um, and so the the theater became this kind of um, space for educating people both about public health but also about consumption in general. There are a lot of right. advertisements, right. Mm-hmm. right? Advertisements for unadulterated milk, right? For modern milk that had been produced in a modern way mm-hmm. that wouldn't kill you, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that you needed to buy, right? You couldn't just get it from the cow, you had right. to buy it. Um, there, so there were lots of ways of instructing people. Um, a lot of Motion picture theaters, particularly in the capital, were um, also had dancing, what people call them, so dance halls that were attached to them, mm-hmm. um, and that were part of the draw um, for young audiences. And that was a place where people likewise kind of performed, and there was a lot of rhetoric, especially in the Catholic press, the conservative Catholic press, about the dangers of the movie theater, um, not only as a kind of dark space where young people could be alone in public, together, 
but also is a space that encourages is kind of um, corporeal engagement that they disapproved of, mm-hmm. which primarily meant dancing to jazz music, right. like the Charleston, et cetera. Because um, these are musical forms that, had, that were accompanying films. Right? There are a lot of mm-hmm. films about jazz music. There was a kind of circulation of jazz as a musical form that was considered kind of up-to-date. And I found these amazing photos of children dancing to Charleston in the street wow. in Mexico City, for mm-hmm. example, really young children. And a lot of times people learned this, these kind of moves from motion pictures, right. from the motion pictures that were imported. Um, so these became spaces that the elite... Um, were really invested in policing and and trying their hardest mm-hmm. um, to kind of um, make sure that people went in the, along the path that they thought appropriate. And the same thing happened, you know, later in the book I talk about um, these young women who wanted to go to Hollywood and really aspired to it and the way that the Mexican press, um, in concert with the elite, kind of, and in the book, this takes the form of a, a beauty contest in which the winner gets to go to Hollywood mm-hmm. right? um, and to get a screen test and visit Paramount Studios. And it was co-sponsored by Paramount because the studios and the kind of distribution companies were always kind of looking for ways to promote their product. But the winner um, got to go. And in the coverage of the contest itself, um, the, the young women who were participating frequently said or were said to have said um, in these kind of profile pieces that appeared in the newspaper that they were doing this not for their own personal satisfaction or for money, but because they wanted to make their country proud, that this was a patriotic service that they were engaged in. So there were ways in which even that desire to appear on screen, which is a desire that I think really became a global desire everywhere that films appeared and fan culture mm-hmm. appeared that emerged, emerged from the U.S., young people were like, oh, I really want to do that. That seems right. really thrilling. Um, that there were ways in which even that desire was put to use in for the nationalist project as a post-revolutionary state. Right. Yeah, and you've started to get at this with the the talking a little bit about the the Mexican press. Uh, we've been talking about you know the importance of the physical space of the cinemas and you know to post revolutionary Mexico and its modernization project. Uh, you also discuss you start to discuss then I think around chapter three more of um, a new cultural space that starts to to emerge. And you, and I believe you title this. You refer to this as you know Cinelandia. So this is where kind of the, the title starts to come in. Um, and particularly yeah. the role that the press plays. Can you talk a bit more about that? Well, yeah, to go back to your question about the title, which is a great one, and I thought really hard about this title and actually had long conversations with my editor about it. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to get at with the title was this, this active process of remaking Hollywood film culture. Mm-hmm. And in the Mexican press, which, you know, was really... Um, became fascinated with cinema, and you see this this really marked shift in the 1920s, which in part is because the U.S. film studios are encouraging um, the press in other countries to cover cinema, but also just shows the kind of fascination by audiences. Um, you see this kind of attention to American film culture and fan culture, um, and many times um, this press coverage, the discourse in the press, 
you know, kind of offered what we might think of as generic information about stars and studios, but at the same time offered um, kind of articles and reviews and discussion that was really localized and addressed Mexican audiences um, as Mexican audiences. Mm-hmm. And they were, there were, um, there's this great source called Cine Mundial, which is the Spanish language version of Moving Picture World, which is one of the most important trade publications. It was published out of New York. Um, and so Cine Mundial is the Spanish language counterpart to Moving Picture World. It's not a direct translation. It was a separate publication. Mm-hmm. Um, they use some of the same material, but they also were really specifically targeting the Spanish-speaking world. So that's the Iberian Peninsula, South America, Latin America. And in the, that magazine, which has actually been digitized, the full run of it has been digitized and is available on the Digital um, Media History Library um, online that is curated by my colleague, Eric White. Um, in that magazine, they also had country-specific sections in which people from different countries would report on what was going on in their specific location um, in terms of cinema and cinema going. And sometimes those conversations or the information that they provided was really wide-ranging and really demonstrates the way that film culture was kind of one aspect of a kind of broader popular culture that included theater, sometimes bullfighting, sports, um, et cetera. Um, But really in this, and this was true on both sides of the border, um, and journalists would often refer to Hollywood as Cinelandia, right? So instead of calling it Hollywood, they would say, and I adopted the term as a kind of evocative figure for this culturally distinct space. Right that included movie theaters, that included the film industry, and by the film industry I mean in Mexico distribution exhibition, Mm -hmm. um, but also included this discursive space in Spanish language newspapers on both sides of the border in which Mexicans engaged with American film culture as Mexicans. And sometimes that meant confronting stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it meant confronting um, the issue of language and interpreting Right? Does the star speak Spanish? Can I write to them in Spanish? Right, Can I write right. to this, this person, et cetera? Um, and, but definitely included a very specific perspective, um, marked by language and sentimental attachments to Mexico, as well as a kind of long history and really profound history of a rather tense U.S.-Mexico relation. Right? So journalists and critics became sort of, um, interpreters or translators. Right. right. So they welcomed people, Mexican fans, who were primarily thought of as being women, but not exclusively, um, into this world of global film culture, but also offered a kind of distinctly Mexican perspective. And they and they really, um, in the process, I would assert, produced audiences that identified with the nation, even as they identified with kind of more universal um, cultural formation. No, but that, that's really fascinating, and it starts to speak to the 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 process of cultural exchange that the the second part of the book focuses on. You know, your first part is your first part addresses the so called Yankee invasion right of, of Mexican cinema and and its establishment and whatnot. Um, but then in the, the probably middle of the book, I think it starts you know really starts to come in in chapter three and, and carries on throughout the rest. You know, you're dealing with uh, the building of this you know transnational. 
Mexican audience, right? A, a also a transnational sense of Mexicanidad that's being built uh, on both sides of the border through exposure to film uh, and fan culture. And so within that, there's Mexican audiences uh, both on both sides of the border, all right, introduced to new forms uh, or, or new conceptions of, of gender, of class, of sexuality, consumerism. You've talked a little bit about this, um, that all being disseminated through American film. Can you talk a little more about the certain specific types of responses that you, we've talked about the cultural elite in some place, in some sense, the, the press. What about um, you know, viewers themselves? How do they respond to these new ideas or, or new images, representations that would be promoted across the screen? Well, um, thanks for pointing out the kind of these two distinct sections of the book, and I really did conceptualize it as a, a book that would, in its kind of material, in its structure, would kind of um, echo the process that I saw going on, in which you know American films come to Mexico, right? They're localized, and then there's this this kind of um, response, right, in which um, both fans cross the border. Um, Opinions about films cross the border, et cetera. And, and so I think this was definitely the most challenging part of the book because mm-hmm. I wanted to be careful not to overstate my claims in right. terms of yeah. how audiences reacted. Um, at the same time, I felt like there was a lot of evidence that could be mobilized in, in kind of um, novel ways, right, taking things that people had looked at before and really thinking about them from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, th- so I imagine the second part of the book is, is thinking about what happens when um, Mexican, the American film culture goes to Mexico and then is, then is returned. Uh, uh-huh, right? uh-huh. That, that potential migrants and migrants, um, because I, you know, I did a lot of work about El Paso, right. and there's a whole string of movie theaters right on the border in the kind of seedy part of El Paso, right as you cross the border, that served Spanish-speaking audiences. And I tried to imagine that one of the first things I would have done, right, um, if I were a young man coming from Mexico and I came across the border and maybe had a little money, um, I might get my picture taken. Lots, mm-hmm. lots of immigrants did that, right? Um, but also I might go see, go to the movies, right. right? That I had heard so much about, or maybe I had experienced in like a bigger town, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to approach the question of reduction from, as a kind of discursive question, right? And think about, for example, the question of young women on both sides of the border who were really the object of a lot of concern. Um, in terms of how they were responding to new images of sexuality and femininity mm-hmm. uh, that were often cast as imperialist or American. Right. But um, really, I don't know if you've read the book or seen the work of the Modern Girl Around the World Project no. um, that came out of the University of Washington. It was a collaborative effort by historians with expertise in different countries who took up the figure of the modern girl, who in Mexico is the pelona, mm-hmm. right? the right. kind of flopper. Um, and looked at her appearance in different um, kind of national contexts, right, in countries as diverse as Japan and India and South Africa and Germany. Right? So this modern girl who's responding to kind of the new models of femininity that are being presented uh, is happening worldwide. And Mexico has its own particular version of it that's really colored by um, people's wariness 
of the United States as a, a political power, right, that is always just not, so, not far enough away from Mexico. Right. And a concern about immigration, right, because people are concerned about what happens to immigrants when they go to the United States and when they come back and they learn all of these the kind of new modes of being um, and women in particular, young women, were thought to be particularly susceptible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and in this, I really um, take a different tact than my, my esteemed colleague, Vicky Ruiz, right, um, who really thinks about tradition and kind of the of tradition and this confrontation with American culture in the United States. Because I really think that this is a process that starts before people cross the border. Right, right. So one of the, um, so gender is one register in which a lot of this, um, the difference between Mexicans on the U.S. side of the border and Mexicans on the um, Mexican side of the border took place, although there are continuities, which I talk about. Um, but the other was the kind of, kind of everyday circumstances of Mexicans in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in the book, I talk about and I've used um, evidence from different parts of the country, from Texas, from the Midwest, because that was evidence that I um, found and could utilize, um, that particularly in those parts of the country, there was a lot of segregation in movie theaters in which Mexicans were allowed um, to sit in Anglo theaters. They were often relegated to the crow's nest, sometimes with African-American patrons, mm-hmm. um, which they resented. Um, but my point in kind of working through that was that there was a different kind of racial geography um, in the United States. And certainly in Mexico, there are issues of race and class. Mm-hmm. Um, they're primarily cast as class issues. But as we know, there's a huge indigenous population that's incredibly marginalized in Mexico and very often was um, presented as like the precisely the wrong type of spectator. <laughs> right. um, and the spectator who couldn't conform to middle class norms of either because they didn't have enough money, they weren't interested, et cetera, but it's part of seeing them as uncivilized, that they don't appreciate motion pictures. Um, but in the United States, Mexican audiences found themselves kind of nego- negotiating um, the kind of racial hierarchy mm-hmm. right, that frequently manifested itself in public accommodation, mm-hmm. including movie theaters. So the kind of upshot of this was the emergence of ethnic-specific ethnic motion picture theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned in El Paso, there's a large number of theaters right on the border that serve a Spanish-speaking clientele. There's theaters in, in Juarez as well, um, but there are many on the U.S. side of the border. Right. Um, in Los Angeles, and Colin Gunkel writes about this in his new book, um, there, is a, there are a number of theaters that grow up on Main Street, right, mm-hmm. um, in North Main, um, near the Plaza, um, that serve first a kind of multiracial population, but specifically in the te- late teens, kind of Mexican audiences. Right. Um, and so you have this emergence of what I call a kind of parallel film culture, right, that is yes. separate, separate from mainstream Anglo film culture, um, but connected. Because, you know, frankly, in La Pignon, which is the Spanish-language newspaper of record, big theaters in downtown L.A. are still taking out advertisements. Right. So they're clearly appealing, perhaps, to a kind of class, a, a, a section of the Mexican immigrant population marked by class, um, namely illiterate population, 
um, but, you know, to come to their theaters. But there are also all these advertisements for um, Mexican-owned or theaters that were owned by Anglos that were targeted at Mexican audiences. Mm -hmm. And I think this issue of race really comes to the fore because one of the biggest controversies in the early 1920s in terms of Mexico's kind of public stance on American films is this boycott that happens, this Mm -hmm. embargo that's been placed by the president um, that is in response to stereotypical images of Mexicans that are being circulated in Hollywood films. And that the Mexican government wants to put a stop to not necessarily, I mean, in part because, and this was one of the things like the historian in me, and I'm always encouraging my students to figure out what these, what these things meant to people at the time. Mm-hmm. Because we have our own ideas about race and racism right. and what that means. And at the time, the kind of the dialogue around these films in which, you know, either the greaser or you have like a bandit, you know, the Mexican was a very convenient villain. Right. Um, <laughs> from, you know, the earliest kind of years of Holly, of film production in the United States. Um, but what the, the, how people understood how those images worked. Right. right. And I wanted to take really seriously my historical subjects. And I had a lot of information about what diplomats thought because the, you know, the official archive of diplomats saying, I'm in Chicago and I went to this movie theater and you would not believe what I saw. Right. 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 And yes. sometimes their rationale was not the kind of liberal humanist rationale that we, you know, that it's morally wrong mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to be racist, but they would say, this is bad PR. Right, right. Like, <laughs> people aren't going to want to do business with us. Like, right. if they show these in Sweden, like, no one will, you know, they'll think we're savages and that we're not. But on the other hand, I was fortunate to find, and sometimes in the really, um, intriguing handwriting and with really incredible diction letters from actual migrants. Right. Those are fascinating. Or Mexicans living in the United States who would say, um, one that I remember is from a man who lived in Galveston, Texas, who would say, you know, I went to the movie theater, I saw the film, it kind of describes the film and it stereotypes and talks about how this film impacts the everyday relations between the Anglo community and the Mexican community in mm-hmm. Galveston. Right. Right. And, and really, so well, I wanted to kind of make it more complex because from my perspective, this was about subject position mm-hmm. right? because each of these different subjects is responding from their own situatedness. Right. 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 Whether it's as a diplomat or a business person or as a migrant, um, and then you have the very fascinating case of Mexican cinema workers who were actually really well organized in terms of labor right, right. Um, from the team. And they are really the, um, the, the source of origin of the strong labor unions that characterize the Mexican studio, film studio system in the 30s and the 40s. So these guys who worked reviewing films, who were projectionists, et cetera, um, because every time you send a printout, someone would have to review it and make sure it wasn't scratched, et cetera. They were really um, kind of important in terms of the labor movement in the entertainment industry. And they had an even, you know, kind of more surprising perspective in which they would write as a group of workers to the president and say, you know, we understand there's this embargo. It's really problematic because we are good citizens and we are workers. We're contributing to the economy. We have all these families to support. 
And these films are, the films of American companies are vital to us performing citizenship. Right. Um, and I found that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I, I really um, was intrigued by being able to analyze and parse kind of these, these uh, different subject positions and think about the ways that people responded differently. Because I think sometimes we get accounts that are very um, blunt, perhaps, like mm-hmm. all workers or all migrants right. or right. all Mexicans, right? And this kind of granular level study really let me say certain things about certain groups of people based on the evidence that I found. No, and that certainly came across, and, and it's one thing that I definitely appreciated, you know, the perspective you were to get from um, ethnic Mexicanos on both sides of the border, whether they were, you know, associated with the state, you know, whether they worked for the consular office or other type of bureaucrats or municipal officials in Mexico and in, in, in towns, or whether it was, again, the migrants themselves, which, you know, that's the perspective. Again, you, you mentioned some of the letters you found, and those really, really are gems um, that you're able to bring out, you know, in, in this narrative. And one of the other, you know, truly great pieces, I think, of the book um, that really spoke to my, my particular interests, uh, again, I, I mentioned earlier that you, were, you talk about, and this is what you've been discussing here, this formation of this transnational Mexican audience that stretched across the U.S.-Mexico border. And in particular, you propose, uh, and this is where you engage with earlier scholarship, you started to mention Vicky Ruiz, and I think our connections started to get a little distorted. So I wanted to go back to that and, and talk about how you propose this alternative interpretation of Mexican migrants' encounters with American mass culture in the 1920s that didn't necessarily result, you know, directly in a in type of unilateral either assimilation or acculturation uh, and adaption of American values. You particularly talk, you know, in specifically about how, um, you know, a, a growing sense of Mexican national identity was able to be formed, you know, across the border, uh, you know, through, you know, viewing. Uh, American film or participating in, you know, the cinema market and, and industry. So can you talk about that uh, a little bit more? Uh, particularly, like I said, sure. about how uh, your, your, your interpretation, you know, how, what you're adding, you know, to, um, you know, this, this uh, what other Chicano and, and popular cultural historians have, have discussed about American mass culture in the 20s. Well, right. And I mentioned Vicki Ruiz because she has this great article, this essay that I left with find about um, young women, Right, and their encounters with American mass culture um, and their kind of negotiation between tradition in the essays in the form of chaperones and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the desire to be kind of modern, et cetera, which um, I think I wanted to think about um, that some of, the, some of the scholarship on immigrant history, and this is in part because of the way the field is structured, had for many years really focused on kind of the sending country as one space and the receiving country as another space. Right, right. right? And this idea of acculturation, um, you know, uh, there are numerous books that I consulted that really framed U.S. film culture as uh, a mechanism for acculturation into mm-hmm. American values and mm-hmm. the American lifestyle. Um, and one of the things that thinking about the circulation of this, these forms of mass culture, and not just the text themselves, but kind of fan culture um, and the emergence of these kind of parallel film cultures prompted me to think through was, you know, what is, like, how can we think about um, these subjects as 
already modern, right? So instead of casting the United States as the site of modernity, right? Modernity takes multiple forms, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I would argue, and this maybe is a longer conversation, but that sometimes underdevelopment, right, or lack of development is part of the modern condition. Mm-hmm. Right. right? right. Someone, someone has to be underdeveloped for there to be developed. Exactly. Right. Um, and in Mexico's case, right, modern modernity in the early 20th century took the form of suburbanization, right? There's a huge move during the revolution from the countryside to the city. Mm-hmm. And that is a piece with the first great wave of my, first wave of migration to the United States, right? Those are, those are events that happen in tandem, right? And that are part of similar processes in which people are looking for economic opportunity, right? Perhaps fleeing political violence, um, because, you know, people forget that in Mexico in the 1920s, there's this huge conflict, kind of civil conflict that continues in the form of the Crusader Rebellion, right? Mm-hmm. That also drives people from their, where they've been located. We have this huge movement of people and this huge kind of um, consumption of imported goods and ideas that I just, the evidence I found did not support saying that this was unilaterally put perceived as negative. Some people perceived it as negative mm-hmm. for various reasons, which were nuanced and often based on their own subject position. And some people perceive them as positive and found ways to integrate them into their own identities as being modern and Mexican. Right. Like they didn't perceive them necessarily as being antithetical to each other. And I thought that this was a really new perspective in terms of our understanding of the cultural history of Mexican migration to the United States mm-hmm. um, and the relationship of ethnic Mexicans to U.S. culture, right? Um, that that we should be wary of perhaps kind of casting Mexico as traditional, mm-hmm. right? Even when that is a kind of positive move, a recuperative move, mm-hmm. um, and casting the U.S. as modern and alienating, et cetera. That, like, there are still... that the, there are processes of change happening on both sides of the border. Right. And, and people are bringing their encounters with that change with them mm-hmm. to the United States. I don't know if that answers your question. or It does. And kind it, of- no, I think it does. And it's, you know, particularly, you know, with the experience of film, you know, watching, um, you know, you're able to, you know, track in the book how, you know, this exposure did not begin with the migration process necessarily, at least the transnational migration process. It, it could have involved, you know, in, you know, traveling, um, exhibitionists, you know, that, that were going throughout the rural countryside or, uh, the migration of, uh, Mexican, uh, families and workers from, you know, rural populations to the urban centers. And so they're being exposed early on, you know, to, uh, movies and the values and ideas promoted in them. And, and so at that point, you know, even within, in Mexico, they're, they start to, right, interpret and, um, what is it? Uh, you know, interpret and adjust or adapt what they're seeing to what they're experiencing and, and really in creating something new. So as you're explaining, you know, it's, it wasn't this, you know, unilateral type of either cultural exper- imperialism occurring in Mexico, nor was it in the migration process and settlement here in ethnic Mexican communities in the U.S., whether Los Angeles or El Paso, it wasn't a form either of just straight-line assimilation or even acculturation. You know? And that you know, audiences were really able to, um, at the same time, they were maybe appropriating new ideas and, and uh, you know, values or 
um, you know, notions about their, their experience of daily life. You mentioned gender and race and whatnot. But uh, also, they were able even, you know, to identify more, you know, with the Mexican nation, with uh, Mexicano culture as it is being developed. And that's the, that's the really fascinating part of it, right? I mean, both of these things are are developing in tandem, as you mentioned. You know, Mexico is the, what's was considered maybe its traditional culture is really in, in the form of being created and and um, you know disseminated, you know, uh, both by you know the states and, and various other you know cultural elites you know throughout Mexico. So these things are this is a really very interesting processes that are going on simultaneously, and your your book brings that out just wonderfully, I think. <laughs> so, I, I don't. I mean, I really try. I think some people have misinterpreted my book, mm-hmm. and, um, like, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an um, example of that, they, maybe? Like in what way? Yeah. Yeah, I can give you an example of it. Um, so I was interviewed on Mexican radio and um, by this kind of prominent radio journalist, and but this has happened in other discussions as well with people who um, really want my book to be against a kind of a statement against U.S. cultural imperialism. Mm-hmm. And talking about how important, you know, fighting the U.S. giant was. And I, it may have made me pause sometimes to think perhaps I didn't write the book as effectively as I wanted to. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but I think rather, I kind of came to the decision that rather um, than me being ineffective, it kind of shows how wedded we might be Mm-hmm. to certain narratives about power yeah. mm-hmm. and about how culture works because mm-hmm. I found in those kind of discussions or um, conversations that people really wanted the U.S. to be the bad guy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Mexico to be the good guy, right? right? The, like, the fighter, the little scrappy guy who's <laughs> fighting, you know, um, and talk about, you know, Mexican film. And, I mean, the truth is, and um, I think I have colleagues who will say this, is that Mexico's golden age was golden. Uh-huh. But it was also a moment in which even those films were sharing the screen with U.S. films. Gotcha, right. On a regular basis. So there was never this moment in which Mexican film dominated Mexican screens completely. Uh-huh. Um, and exclusively, there was a moment when Mexican cinema became a really powerful industry in Mexico and became a transnational force in terms of global media culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was never a utopia right. um, in which the U.S. was absent. And, you know, as um, my colleague Seth Fine um, has researched, you know, a lot of the U.S. companies during the golden age of Mexican cinema didn't disappear. Mm-hmm. They became the engine behind distribution right in Latin America so their role changed but they didn't go away right so the idea that there is this kind of completely national industry and even I'm I'm writing an essay on Estudio Sorosco which was built in 1944 and became the kind of epicenter of Mexican film production in the in the late 40s and 50s um, and is still operating today, and it's a really important kind of um, site for film production. Um, but even that, you know, like the, the building of the studio was co-funded by RKO Pictures. Mm-hmm. Right? And one of their first projects was the film La Bella, which was co-produced by RKO. So, so even this kind of what you might think of as this kind of ultimate symbol of the national industry right. 
already has kind of the transnational built into its very materiality. Yes, yes, uh uh-huh. Like the materials that are used to build it are bought with U.S. money. Right. In collaboration, of course, with Emilio Azaraga, who's this big radio guy in Mexico, who become really important in Spanish-language television in the United States, et cetera, but, there's, but it's a constant kind of negotiation and collaboration um, as opposed to kind of a pure nationalist space. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I think in some ways, like the story that I'm telling, it is part of the kind of genealogies that she comes from generation, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of being just but also participating in American culture. Right, right. And adapting it and transforming it and using it to one's own ends. And of course, that becomes highly politicized in the 1960s and 70s. Right. right. In a way that it may not necessarily be in the 1920s. But I think the seeds of that, that is not necessarily as radical a shift mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As, as we might think. Right. And perhaps that this is a much more, um, what is it, you know, common d- development. That happens, right? When cultures clash, if you will, right? When people from uh, desperate backgrounds meet, uh, in, uh, as you mentioned, in, in certain spaces, whether that be a, a cinema or any other type of public space, and you know, they have to begin this this negotiation uh, of of um, you know both ideas, values, um, you know, competition of resources, all of that, right? And and that's definitely what uh, this book is start to show and I think that's you know that connection to what we identify with the Chicano generation um, this fall your your book falls into this line of scholarship that's showing this it's a much more it's a much deeper process you know that that happens uh, both earlier but then you know broader in many different locales yeah and I think that the, the kind of political potential differs with each context, right? Mm-hmm. Each particular moment in your own work, right? You're looking at a very particular moment in which there's a certain horizon of possibility, mm-hmm. right? To borrow from Habermas. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there's a certain horizon of possibility in which certain things become possible. Right. In terms of politics or desirable. Mm-hmm. Right? In the 1920s, many Mexicans didn't think they were going to stay here. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Right, so, so it wouldn't necessarily, necessarily become the point, a point of political contention. And that changes radically in the 30s and the 40s. Mm-hmm. And people have a different perspective. And likewise, in the 60s and the 70s, there's a whole different kind of horizon of political possibility right. that's part of kind of global revolutionary and like youth movements um, that I think opens different windows. This idea that, you know, once it really, and I think sometimes, um, especially when I work with undergrads, like getting them to see subtlety mm-hmm. in terms of culture um, and cultural history is both challenging and really exciting. Because then they, they get excited about, like, well, I can tell all these different kinds of stories, right? And I can focus on um, different groups or different perspectives. And right. think about how, you know, this, this one event or one moment really can be seen in multiple ways by different historical actors. Gotcha. Definitely. I agree. And I, you know, I appreciate so much time, uh, the time that you've spent with us today. We're pretty much out of time, running out of time very quickly. I did want to give you a moment to, we spent so much time talking about your, your completed project that was completed in, back in 2014, or at least published then, but completed a bit earlier. So can you talk a little bit more about, uh, just briefly, what it is you're working on now? Give us an idea of what that's like. Well, I am just about, as we speak, packing to go to Merida, Yucatan. Um, on a Fulbright, another Fulbright. Wow, congratulations. 
Thank you. Yeah, really excited about that um, and felt quite honored to get to be the recipient of both a student Fulbright grant and now a scholar grant to go to Mexico. And I am currently working, although I have some other things in the works, but I'm currently working on a book about the distribution of films, silent films, so that's kind of my bailiwick, um, in the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. And the use of film by different political actors in the region. Um, so the first part of my research is focusing on Yucatan, which, um, and this grew, and this is one of the kind of things that I find exciting as a scholar. So when I found the census of exhibitors, I did some, some kind of basic number crunching um, to figure out more or less approximately how many seats per, per thousand uh, citizens there were. And so I used census uh, information. And I had a list of theaters in every state in Mexico with uh, um, the number of people that they could accommodate. Wow. And it turned out that Yucatan <laughs> had more seats, could seat more of its population at any given time hmm. than any other state wow. in the republic, including this. That in proportion to its population, it had an enormous number of, of cinema seats. Mm-hmm. available. And I found this really intriguing. Right. And I think, you know, I mentioned this to some Latin American historians, and they're like, well, yeah, that makes sense, right? Because Yucatan is a very wealthy state. It's really outside of kind of the drama of the revolution. And um, yet, in the 20s, so when the census is undertaken, it has a socialist governor, right? Um, and it has this long history. So I became really intrigued by thinking about um, what's going on in Yucatan, and Yucatan is really much more oriented towards Cuba mm-hmm. and New York and New Orleans than it is even towards Mexico City because you simply can't get there from there right. <laughs> because there's no railroad and there's no highway until much later in the 20th century. Um, and intriguingly enough, the Yucatan is the site of the very first feature film that was ever produced in Mexico. In 1916, hmm. um, it was a historical drama, and it was made by two guys who were the sons of very wealthy families. One of them had gone to Philadelphia to study chemical engineering, and he, he came back kind of excited about motion pictures, and he ordered a, a, a camera, and, and he set about making shorts, and then eventually they made two feature films and a serial um, in Yucatan, and this is facilitated by his wealth, right? He decides to make historical dramas and brings a set designer from Cuba and gets a lot of Mayan Indians to um, kind of play, you know, the, the soldiers in his account. He borrows our, uh, um, uniforms, et cetera. So it's really intrigued by this, this um, nexus of exhibition and production, even though it's artisanal and regional, um, that was really striking, and I decided, and I think it's fortunate for me that, that diplomatic relations with Cuba have been have shifted considerably, mm-hmm. um, to think about the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, because the Yucatan has such um, close ties to Cuba, and a lot of the people who are active in the film business in Yucatan are actually Cubans, um, who either come and go from the island or come and go, and so I'm really fascinated um, and working through thinking about film distribution in the Spanish-speaking Caribbean as part of that region's um, manifestation of global capitalism in the early 20th century. It's a mm. somewhat ambitious project, mm-hmm. um, and some of what I hope to do is to track the use of film exhibition by both the socialist government 
in Yucatan and by um, plantation owners, Hennequin plantation owners in Yucatan and then sugar plantation owners in Cuba. Wow. Um, it's a little bit of a challenge, but Certainly, I have found yeah. evidence. I have found evidence that I went to the National Archives and I found evidence of plantation owners in Yucatan importing projectors. Wow. From the United States. Um, along with generators and lights, et cetera, et cetera. But there were a lot in 1917, 1918, a lot of plantation owners kind of um, asking for permission to bring these projectors over and they were going to use them on their, on their land to show films to their workers um, and probably as well to their, to their um, families as well. But, you know, this was, but although a lot of the elite had houses in Merida where there were never theaters. But anyway, so this is a project I'm embarking on. I'm really excited about it. It represents a little bit of a shift away from my American cities background. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, really can participate in some of the conversations that have really exciting conversations in the field of history around the history of capitalism. Yeah. Um, and fill in some gaps for us in terms of what we know about the history of cinema in Latin America, um, which is still a field that's really ripe for investigation, mm-hmm. um, particularly in terms of this kind of historical archival research in which there are just, I have colleagues in Brazil who are working on motion picture theaters, who are working on exhibition, my colleague Riel Nowitzki, who is working on kind of comparative studies of kind of sensationalized the relationship between um, the news and film and filmmaking um, in Brazil and Mexico, which is incredibly fascinating work, but I think there are lots of opportunities. And I'm really excited about this project. Um, so I'm going to be spending the next nine months in the archives in Yucatan. Wow. And seeing what I could dig up. Um, and I've already had lots of fun kind of looking for the names of these businessmen in um, ship manifests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of tracking when they go to the United States or to Paris, how long they're gone. You know, um, I'm trying to figure out how, to, how I can identify what they bring back and what they import. Right. So it's a little bit of a harder. But I'm really, um, I guess this is the part of being a historian that I really like. Yeah, uh-huh. My kind of detective work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so. that, that sounds fascinating and very deserving of the Fulbright. So we look very much forward to that project developing. And when it's completed, hopefully we can have you back and, and talk to you a bit about that one. Thank you so much for the invitation um, to speak about the book. I'm really, I really hope that lots of different kinds of readers will um, find it accessible. Um, I did try to write it in such a way that... Um, my grandma could read it, which she did. Right, good. Oh, and, awesome. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, to really appeal, because I think there's a lot of things that, as Latinos, um, a lot of our history that is still uh, mysterious to us and deserves to have kind of wider circulation. I agree. And whether, you you know, one is interested in Chicano and Latino studies, or you're into film studies, or... Uh, you know, my interest, borderland studies, whatever it may be, uh, you know, this speaks, you know, across disciplines into a number of interests. So definitely, uh, I think it does speak to a broad readership and I encourage our listeners to grab a copy of it and read it and discuss it with others. And Laura, thank you again so much for your time. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much, DJ. Thank you. Of course. Thanks again for tuning into New Books in Latino Studies. This is David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Laura Isabel Serna 
about her new book, Making Cinelandia, American Films and Mexican Film Culture Before the Golden Age, published by Duke University Press in 2014. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, we've linked it onto our New Books and Latino Studies page. You can click right on the book's image, and that'll send you right to Amazon where you can uh, purchase the book. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us at New Books and Latino Studies, you may do so by sending us an email at newbooksandlatinostudies at gmail.com or comment on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear your comments about previous interviews, this interview, or suggestions for future ones. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.